Are you excited to be here tonight? I mean, really excited. You know, because we can say, uh, oh, gosh, I'm so excited about that. Uh, I got a new suit. I'm so excited. I got a new car. I'm so excited. What does excitement really mean? Are you really excited? And how long will that excitement last? Uh, you know, new car smell doesn't stay on forever, right? It's got a limit. After a while, a little funky, but uh, excitement can last a long time. Some of you may be familiar with an author, uh, Joel Rosenberg. At last count, Joel Rosenberg, he's a Messianic Jew, by the way, uh, wonderful, wonderful guy, uh, Christian, Christian Jewish man, but at last count, uh, Joel had written 18 books, most of which are novels. The distinctive I want to mention is that his stories begin with excitement from the very beginning. Not after a chapter or two setting it all up and getting ready and preparing the, the groundwork. No, no. From the first or second page, we are already worried for someone because a dangerous situation uh, has already developed. There's something else is going on, and it starts getting better from there on. This type of excitement gets the reader wanting to get into the story quicker and see how the protagonist or the main character is going to fare, how he's going to come out of this. We want to find out how he or she will survive the dangers that the reader sees developing. And so the excitement just rises until sometimes even our breathing gets quickened. I mean, we really get into it. In order for your breathing to be affected, you really need to get into it. Well, I did on this last book that I'm reading of his, and uh, it's, it's a, I mean, it's a terrific and exciting book to read. But isn't that also the way that we should be feeling about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Even though he was not a person likely to be shooting arrows or throwing spears, he nevertheless created a stir Wherever he went, wherever he went, there was excitement. There was action. There was something. Somebody was against him. Somebody was for him. Uh, things were going on that, that people hadn't experienced maybe or just all kinds of activity. Wherever he showed up, he didn't have to do very much. Just show up. That's all he had to do. We can only surmise or speculate what it must have been like for the first disciples when he approached them that made them want to follow him. You know, did he come with his hands folded, uh, looking down at the ground? Uh, did, did he come in so humble that uh, they could have missed him? Or did he stand there with authority in his face, with authority in his voice? What did he promise them? What did he say to them? Certainly not riches. He didn't promise them riches, for he never showed any such inclination. 
nor did he lord it over, no pun intended, nor did he lord it over anyone, not even the lowliest of the low. He just approached people in a humane, a loving, a respectful manner. And yet, he created a stir everywhere. There must have been something exciting about him that made them leave friends, family, business, careers. John 1, starting at verse 26, begins the encounter between John the Baptist and Jesus and shows us the rapid growth of Jesus' group of followers and his ministry. So I want us to start there and start reading. Actually, we're going to start reading in verse uh, 19. And it says, now this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no, I am not. Then they said to him, who are you that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now those who were sent were from the Pharisees, so they were officials of the temple. And they asked him, saying, Why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? Who are you that you should be doing these things? John answered them, saying, I baptize with water, but there stands one among you whom you do not know. It is he who, coming after me, is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to lose. Can you imagine? John the Baptist was the cousin of Jesus Christ. That was his cousin. And yet he's talking about Jesus Christ as if Jesus is a special person. I am not qualified to even untie his sandal. That's how he revered, that's how he saw Jesus Christ. These things were done in, in Beth, what is it? Bethabara, beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. He was out in the wilderness. But people came out from miles around, from towns around, all the way from Jerusalem. Bless you. Bless you, Susan. He, they came out to see him baptizing people. So he was already a figure that they looked at as an important figure. And here he was important enough for people from the temple to have sent someone to inquire, who are you? Who are you? 
that you're baptizing people. Now the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. What did he mean? He was before me. Well, Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. He was way before John. He was way before anything in the world. Certainly, he was from the beginning of time. I did not know him, he says, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore, I came baptizing with water. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. Now, you recall that Jesus came to John to be, to be baptized, and John said, no, I, I'm the one that should be baptized by you. But Jesus said, well, just this one time, do this. Let's turn the tables around. You baptize me so that he could begin his ministry, so that he could begin working. So John had baptized him, but after Jesus came up out of the water, a dove came from heaven and settled on him. Well, John had been told, he on who the dove will settle, that is the one that will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I do not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. Now, Coming back to what my original intent was, is that there should be excitement when we're talking about the Word of God, when we're talking about Jesus Christ. This is not a little story that we just want to read and I uh, fill the time and then go on and do something, some other asinine thing. This is exciting. This is the Son of God. John the Baptist. John, who had been blessed by the Lord, who was anointed by the Lord, who was baptizing people by the thousands that were coming out, says, this is the Son of God. Again, the next day, John stood with two of his disciples, and looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, behold the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned, and seeing them following him, said to them, What do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which is to say when translated, Teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and see. They came and saw where he was staying, and remained with him that day, now it was about the 10th hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. 
he first found his own brother Simon and said to him, this is Andrew, we have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. He brought his brother Simon Peter to Jesus. Now, when Jesus looked at him, he said, you are Simon, son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone. The following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. It's Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom is no deceit. This guy doesn't have any deceit in his heart. This is a true Israelite. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip brought you or called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? Just because I told you that, that makes you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, most assuredly, I say to you, hereafter you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. All of this transpired there within a short period of a couple of days, two or three days. But the important thing that I want to call the attention to us is, is that these things that were happening were not bland things that we can just take and say, okay, I, I read the verses that I needed to write for today, so I'm putting my Bible away, and tomorrow we'll see what else is going to be there. It's not that kind of reading that we're doing. We're reading about Three times here it's mentioned, you are the son of God. Twice Jesus identified guys that he saw, two people that he saw, and told them who they were, even knew one of them who his father was, the other one that he'd been standing under a fig tree, and he said, I saw you. Does this not excite you to know who this Jesus is. This is the Jesus that we profess to love. This is the Jesus that went to the cross for us. And way back here in the beginning, he was already 
showing his greatness to people. And this could not have been something that they just, oh, wow, he called me. Well, I think I will follow him. Uh, here we go. It's not that kind of a thing. That's not the way they would have reacted to Jesus, an authority figure, calling them to come and follow him so that they left their home, their friends, they left their careers, their jobs, and followed him. Just this chapter alone could be the whole message. <laughs> but I must uh, capsulize it to include others who have also grasped the excitement of knowing Jesus. First of all, John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus after having baptized him, told his two disciples, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard John speak, and right away they followed Jesus. All he said was, Behold the Lamb of God, and they followed Jesus. He didn't tell them, follow him, go with him, trust him, serve him. He only told them who he was, the Lamb of God. Now, if Hollywood had portrayed John the Baptist saying, behold the Lamb of God, you know that it would have been a dramatic scene with John maybe raising his hands high like he did with Charlton Heston and, you know, when he portrayed Moses uh, with a flowing robe and the wind was blowing it and he just looked like twice as big as he actually was. But he would have said, behold, the Lamb of God. Well, maybe he did say it that way. But I think that if he was saying that, it would have been dramatic enough to say, Look, that's the Son of God. That's the Lamb of God. Look, that man walking there. That would have been more like the way that he would have said it so that they were interested in knowing, wow, well, let's go see where he goes because John was big enough, but wow, if that's the Lamb of God, let's go follow him. Would that excite anyone? Oh, okay. Because I didn't see anybody jumping up over there saying, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm with you. Were those men with John anxious to attach themselves to someone special like the Son of God? Folks, think about it. They were in the presence of a divine person in the presence of a divine person. The temple at Jerusalem was dedicated to the worship of their God, and this was the son of that God. Would you be impressed? All right, now I'm getting a little more. All right, stay awake with me, okay? I'm trying to establish the fact that it is imperative we see the worship of God, the belief in Jesus Christ as a privilege that must not be minimized nor squandered. There is a saying that says, familiarity breeds contempt. Some of you may have heard it. 
Familiarity breeds contempt. I believe that means that when we get so used to or familiar with something or someone that we tend to not see it or treat it with the respect that person or thing or event might deserve. So I have to, yeah, okay, I saw it yesterday. Or, I, yeah, I met him. I, he's okay. In this case, we don't consider the sanctity or holiness of God or of Jesus. Today, there are skeptics that say that the Bible is not true in portraying Jesus or God as real entities. That Jesus was not raised from the grave. There are people that they will give you an argument for hours and hours. They, they will ruin your day. That there is no heaven or hell. Where's heaven? Show me heaven. Show me hell. Who knows there's a hell? Who's gone there and come back? Some religious religions even say that we can become God ourselves. Now, there's a little arrogant statement. I'm sure the thought of that possibility might capture the imagination of some, but alas, as they say in poetry, what a waste of effort and imagination that is. It is, is it rational, rather, likely that so many people have given up their lives through the ages for what those skeptics call a lie? Is it likely? Do you think, what are the chances that so many people gave up their lives willingly because they believed in Jesus Christ? Let's see what happened to some of the more prominent characters, not only in the Bible, but in the subsequent church that developed and in our society even today. And some of these persons lived even before Jesus appeared. Some, like Joshua, were not martyred, but showed their reverence for God. And we're going to read Joshua 24. Chapter 24, verses 14 through 25. Now, therefore, Joshua speaking, fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and in truth, and put away the gods which your fathers served in the other side of the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell today. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's who we're going to serve. I don't care what you guys do. You're going to choose. It's your option. You have been given the option. You've been given the right to choose. Okay. Determine then what you're going to do. But as for me and my house, we are serving the Lord. So the people answered and said, Far be it from us that we should forsake 
the Lord to serve other gods. For the Lord our God is he who brought us out and our fathers up out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, who did those great signs in, the, in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the people throughout whom, through whom we passed. We've been walking from Egypt and we've seen signs and miracles and it was God, it was that God. They're coming to that realization. Joshua is putting, is putting pressure on them. You've got to make a decision here. And the Lord drove out from before us all the people, including the Amorites who dwelt in the land. We also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. But Joshua said to the people, you cannot serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. It's not just anyone that's going to come up here and then just say, yeah, I serve God. Okay, I'll do something for you, and uh, that should suffice. That, that should be enough. Uh, I'll be called a good man. I'll be called a person of the living God. He's saying, you can't serve the Lord. He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He's not going to split up who he is, his importance with someone else so you can keep on doing what you're doing in the world. He's not going to do that. He will not forgive your transgressions nor your sins if you continue doing that. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you. Wow. After he has done you good. And the people said to Joshua, no, but we will serve the Lord. So Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourselves. You are hearing each other saying that you will serve God, that you have chosen the Lord for yourselves to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. Now, therefore, he said, put away the foreign gods which are among you and incline your heart to the Lord God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, the Lord our God we will serve and his voice we will obey so Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and made for them a statute and an ordinance in Shechem. Now, all of this took place out, out in the desert where they were going to take over the land of Canaan to claim their inheritance that had been promised since Abraham hundreds of years before this promise had been made to Abraham that his descendants would have the land of Canaan as their inheritance. It's coming now to fruition. It's becoming a reality. Joshua is telling them, you need to get serious about who you will serve. Those foreign gods or the Lord.
I wanted to include this particular person who honored God because look who else also accepted to honor the Lord. The particular person I'm speaking of, of course, is Joshua. Joshua served the Lord, took over when Moses had died, had been taken by the Lord. And so Joshua was leading how many people came out of Egypt? Millions. Millions of people came out of Egypt. Who is making the promise now to serve the Lord? These millions of people. And they're making the promise in each other's presence so that the covenant that Joshua wrote was going to cover all of them. How many people? Millions of people serving the Lord, promising to serve the Lord. Isn't that exciting? All at once, millions of people are serving the Lord. Isn't that exciting? <laughs> Folks, this is important. This is important. It's a viewpoint that we need to have about our Lord and Savior. This is something that we should be excited about every day. Every single day from the moment we wake up till the time that we go to bed at night, we should be aware that we serve the living God, that we serve Jesus Christ the Son, the Lamb of God. The millions of Israelites that had come out of Egypt, Egyptian bondage were promising now to serve the Lord. It wasn't just Joshua. The whole number of freed people, which, by the way, shows us another truth. They were not only free from Egypt, but they were now free to worship the living God, Jehovah. We like to say that we live in a free country, that we have the right to, to choose who we will serve, or who we will worship, or who we will follow, or what we want to believe. But folks, be aware, daily, daily, that right is being chipped away at by those people that do not love the Lord, by those people that would deceive us, by those people that want to see us fail, by those people that want to gain importance in saying there is no God. We need to be aware that those voices are not being silenced and instead are growing in volume and in intensity every day. That freedom that we talk about, they're trying to limit it. Well, these people had just come out of the bondage of Egypt and now they were free and they were making this choice. Today we believe and receive Jesus Christ, to believe rather and receive Jesus Christ means we are free from the bondage of the evil one. That's who had us by the throat. That's who had us by the neck. 
the evil one before we came to Jesus. Namely, Lucifer or the devil or Satan or whatever you, you choose to call him. Bondage is a type of martyrdom and many people are today, today are martyr, martyrs, pardon me, to idols of all types, but praise the Lord through Jesus Christ they can be set free. Amen? They can be set free. Every day someone receives that freedom. Every day someone professes to believe in Jesus Christ. Here are a few men a few more who were martyred for the sake of the gospel. The apostle Peter was crucified, by the way, upside down at his request because he did not consider himself worthy to be put to death the way his savior was. So they were going to crucify him and he said, don't put me right side up like Jesus did. So they crucified him upside down, but he was crucified and he died because of that. This was Peter. Peter, did he deny Jesus? Three times, right? Jesus had told him, you're gonna do this. He said, no way, I will never leave you. I'll die with you. Well, he died for him, even though he didn't die at the time that Jesus did, he did die for him. When he received the Holy Spirit and when he believed and when he did the work that was given to him to do. The apostle Andrew, after he had been sp spreading the gospel in what is now Russia and in Asia Minor, in Turkey, and finally in Greece, he was crucified also in Greece. That's how he died. He gave up his life also for the Savior, for the sake of the Savior, for the name of the Savior. He gave up his life. Thomas was probably most active in Syria but also is said to have gone as far as India. Tradition has it that he was pierced through with the spears of four soldiers that would have either thrown or speared him and killed him. Gave up his life for the Savior, for the sake of Jesus Christ. Stephen, we know, was stoned to death when his teaching insulted the Jewish leaders who didn't take kindly to what the word of God said against them. And Stephen was preaching it and they didn't like it and they found witnesses to speak against him so that they threw him out of the city and stoned him to death for the sake of Jesus Christ. Philip went to Carthage, Asia Minor, and North Africa. 
It was in Asia Minor where he was responsible for leading the wife of a Roman proconsul to the Lord. As revenge or in, in retaliation, the Roman had Philip arrested and put to death in a cruel manner, gave up his life for Jesus Christ. Matthew wrote the gospel, right, also, ministered in Persia and Ethiopia. And it is said that he was stabbed to death in Ethiopia. That's how he died, giving up his life for Jesus Christ. James, the son of Alphaeus, is said to have ministered in Syria. The Jewish historian Josephus reported that this James, there were about three James mentioned in the Bible, but this was the son of Alphaeus, that he was stoned and then clubbed to death. Not a pretty sight, is it? Not a nice way to go. He didn't die peacefully in bed. He didn't die because somebody poisoned him or he just died of old age. No, he was stoned. And as if that wasn't enough, then he was clubbed to death. Gave up his life for Jesus Christ. The apostle chosen by the 11 uh, apostles after Judas committed suicide is, is said to have ministered, that was uh, Matthias, to have ministered in Syria, and he was burned to death. Again, not a nice way to go. Not an easy death. Why did he do it? He did it for Jesus Christ. Only the Apostle John is said to have survived to a ripe old age. But I believe we can see why God didn't allow him to be martyred, although they did attempt to boil him in oil. But he escaped that death and, we are, and was exiled to the island of Patmos. What did he do in Patmos? He wrote the book of Revelation. Is that an important book to us today? Just think about how God acts on the behalf of his word. He wrote the book of Revelation, which today tells us what's coming. He saw God. He saw heaven. I've, I've, I've mentioned this before in another, another teaching some time back. We're hearing the word right now. Can you imagine those, some of these people preaching the word in, the, in some of the churches there in the beginning, the early churches, and then the door opens in the back of the place and everybody hears it and they turn and they see this old man being brought in, and he, they walk him up to the front, and one of the people is, welcome brothers, who are you? And he says, 
This is John. He walked with Jesus. He knew Jesus. He was with him throughout his ministry. This is John. He's not telling you what he heard from somebody else. He saw it. He lived through it. Would that have been exciting to anyone? It's exciting to me today, just thinking about it. He walks into a place, and when they say who he is, my goodness, he actually knew Jesus and walked with him and talked to him. That's exciting. Oh, and lest we forget, there was Paul. From the time he became a minister of the gospel, these are some of the things that happened to him, to Paul. Remember, Paul was raised a Pharisee, a Jew of the Jews. He said himself, a Jew of the Jews, an important person. He was taught by an important rabbi, Gamaliel. All the Jewish background that he had made him a powerful person. He was pursuing Christians when they were called children or people of the way. He was pursuing them to go and arrest them and take them back to Jerusalem to have them thrown in prison. That's how he looked at Christianity. He would have Christians arrested and imprisoned before Jesus appeared to him and told him, you are going to be a witness of mine and serve me. This is what happened to Paul. And, and it's only some of the things that happened. He was put to hard labor. He was beaten. He was imprisoned. He was given 39 lashes five times. Now, they used to give people 39 lashes because if they gave them 40, it would kill them. So they gave them 39 just so they would get the message. But can you imagine the state of that person after 39 lashes? what they must have felt like, what they must have been like, what they must have looked like. Well, he went through that five times. He was stoned and left for dead. He was shipwrecked three times. And he was stranded a whole day and a night in the open ocean and left for dead. Most people would have gotten the message after he was put in hard labor, the first one, and said, hey, wait a minute, let me think this over. Uh, let me give this a little more thought. 
to pursuing this line of work. He went through the whole thing. Do you remember the time that they were going to kill him? The Jews were waiting for him to come out into the city and they had to put him out through a window by the wall and lay, let him down in a basket so that he could escape because they were looking for him to kill him. And other times when his life was threatened. What could these people be thinking to freely and willingly give their lives for Jesus? What is so exciting about him that they would choose death rather than deny him? I believe Paul gave a good answer for this uh, mentality when he said in the book of 2 Timothy 4, 6 through 8, it's a well-known, well-known scripture. Verse 6, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Now, can you imagine him telling the disciples, he's writing this to them. He's writing them to them and telling them, hey, I'm ready to go. I've already done what I needed to do. What I was called to do, I have completed my mission. I'm ready. I'm ready to give up my, this life. There's a crown of righteousness waiting for me in heaven. What do I have here? Beating, shipwreckings, hunger, all kinds of things that were happening to him. But there was something much better coming for him. A crown of righteousness, a place where he could see Jesus that he had seen in that vision when he was on his way to Damascus. He saw Jesus Christ and received him and accepted him and believed in him and obeyed him just as we do today every one of us. Okay, amen. <laughs> Thank you. The, the crown is only the icing on the cake. The fact that he loved mankind so much that he went to the cross so that we would have salvation within our reach rather than leave us to be condemned to hell is something about which we need to rejoice. Jesus did it for us. Who else would do this for us? Does that excite you? Amen. He, God, came to earth in the form of a man and took on himself all the sins of the world to cleanse you and me from sin. Does that excite you? Boy, 
said yes over here. Okay. See, I was able to hear the one yes by itself. Does that excite you? All right. He has promised to never leave us nor forsake us. Does that excite you? He has told us that in this world we will have tribulation, but he will be with us through all those difficult times. Does that excite you? Uh, starting to sound like a choir. In the book of John 14, 1, 6, he said this, let not your heart be troubled. You know, Pastor Charlie's been teaching on this and he repeats it, but it bears repeating. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. This is the important part, folks. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. And of course, Thomas, said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going, and how can we know the way? And Jesus tells him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, so get on the ticket. Do what you need to. There is a place for all who have received him and who love him as shown to us in John 14, 21. What do we need to do? He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. Does that excite you to know that the God of the universe will love you for loving his son? Does that excite us? Wow. Does it excite you to know that you can have the God of creation come and dwell with you? The God of creation, for goodness sake that created everything we have around us, that we see the skies, the comets, the planets, everything in the world, us, our lives, that God can come and dwell with us. John 14, verse 22 and 33, Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. And we, Jesus, 
and the Father, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Could we possibly have a better option than this? That God, the creator, has promised to come and dwell with us if we keep his word, if we show the love for Christ, he will come and dwell with us. Does that excite you? Gosh, it better, folks. It better. And in closing, let me tell you that today people are being martyred for the sake of his name. Today, hundreds of thousands have been killed in China because they believe in Jesus. Now, they don't have the laws that we've got here to protect them. They can bust into the army, can bust into any place over there whenever they want, whenever they suspect something, and they can arrest people and hold them indefinitely under whatever charges they might trump up against them or kill them. But believing in Jesus, that's a special, that's a specialty for killing. That's a special reason to get rid of them. At the massacre at Columbine High, high school, there was one particular person that showed us what it means to be faithful to the faith. And that was Rachel Scott, that young lady that was asked by one of the shooters who was aiming the gun point blank at her and asked her, are you a Christian then? Are you a Christian? Her answer was, yes. And she died right there when he killed her. But she did not deny the excitable Jesus Christ, the source of excitement, Jesus. On October the 1st, 2015, in Umpqua Community College, one of the rooms where the shooter had isolated some students, the shooter asked them, they put them all on the floor, and then he told them one by one, Stand up. And as they stood up, he said, what is your religion? And if they said Christian, they were shot in the head and killed right there. If they answered, no, I'm not a Christian, and whatever else they might have said, I'm a survivor, then they were shot in the leg but they, but they lived. But Rachel didn't deny the Lord. And these folks, the, the ones that said, yes, I am a Christian, and were killed, where are they today from what we know of the Bible? Where are they today? They're definitely with the Lord. They're definitely with Jesus Christ, with the one for whom they 
gave their life, the one they promised to love and obey, they are with him for all eternity. Would we pass the test today? If put in one of those situations, I pray we will never have to be tested that way. But look around you, folks. Look around you at what's happening today. The occurrence of violence is increasing. What happened in Chicago this last weekend? How many people were killed because of the number of guns that are held by citizens in Chicago? There are so many guns there. They could equip an army, just the city of Chicago. People were killed because of the evil that is going on, that is being perpetrated on America. It's coming closer, folks, to the day when maybe we are going to be standing before someone asking us, so you're a Christian? What is our answer going to be? I want to remain excited about Jesus until my end. You know, this is not to interject uh, jocularity or joke or whatever, but I did a uh, memorial next door here one time, and uh, the lady, uh, another couple that were just there, the lady came over after I was finished, and she said, when I die, I want you to do my service. And I said, well, you'd better hurry because I don't, I don't know how much time I've got left. <laughs> so if you're going to use me, <laughs> you're a lot younger than I am. Well, whatever number of years or dates or months or whatever I've got left, I want to be excited about Jesus Christ in my life. How about you? Amen?